0: Hello dreamers and thank you for stopping in for another casual bonus episode of California Dreaming. This one is going to be a vacation series because for a couple of weeks I've been trying to figure out this case that we're talking about today by listening to a podcast or two about it. And I think I found a special on Dateline recently, but I don't know if it's the information or the episodes or... If it's just me, I'm not, I'm not really able to put it together right in my head. I'm all mixed up, and it's the story has become so disjointed and complicated, and I'm just getting lost. Most likely it's me, but I started looking around on the Internet and jotting down some key names and important dates, and I guess the best way for me to understand a story is to put together a chronology and make it into an episode for myself. So I figured, why not? Might as well. This is a story about a once-powerful South Carolina family known as the Murdochs. For people who are from that particular part of the state of South Carolina, they've likely been following this story since Maybe February of two thousand nineteen, perhaps even before that. There's at least one podcast out there. Uh, no, no, there's two. There's one that I liked more than the other. Um, they're local journalists. They've been following this case and from the very beginning for quite some time. And I'm in the middle of listening to one of the podcasts. So hopefully, all of this information isn't too redundant. I I'm going to try to tell it in my own way, but honestly, I really just wanted to know more about this story. So let's dive in and try to figure out what the heck is going on here with the Murdoch family. So things in South Carolina are a little bit different when it comes to the counties and the way their system is structured, but for the most part, it's pretty straightforward and similar to the way things usually are. From most of the stories that we tell. The epicenter of this case takes place in what is known as the Low Country. I'll explain more about that in a moment. I actually have some residual knowledge of South Carolina because whatever year it was in elementary school that they studied United States history, the students were each given a state to do a term paper on. It's not a term paper what the hell am I talking about? That's like college. What's it called? It's like a report. You know, you put all this crap together into a folder and present it like that. So we had pictures and maps and the state bird and the state motto. And I remember my daughter coloring a lighthouse and the flag. Oh, the, the South Carolina flag is one of my favorites. It has this, I don't know if you've seen it, it has this deep indigo color with the palmetto tree in white in the middle and then a crescent moon in the upper left-hand corner. It's a really pretty flag and very unique. So yeah, we did that report on South Carolina. And I don't like to say that I have favorite crimes, but well, I do. Let's say, well, let's call them crimes that, you know, we are hung up on or we think about every now and again, particularly crimes that are unsolved. The ones I check up on every year or so that I like to look for updates are from Investigation Discovery Show Disappeared. I've talked about that being one of my favorite shows, which I guess doesn't really sound much like me because for us, I'm not a fan of covering unsolved cases. On this show, but most of the disappeared episodes are unsolved. But every now and again, there will be an update. And on Disappeared, one of the stories that really stuck with me was a missing persons case from Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. I've always wanted to tell this story, but I guess I just never really got around to it. And like I said, I don't really like covering unsolved cases. So I thought I would take the opportunity since we're going to South Carolina for this episode to squeeze this in as sort of a side story before we get to the meat and potatoes of it all. So along the coast of South Carolina, along the Atlantic Ocean, there's a series of 34 islands that make up that part of the state, pretty much all the way to the Georgia state line. Hilton Head Island is very close to Georgia, and there was a case on Disappeared about a couple who went missing back in 2008. Their names were Liz and John Calvert. And I don't know why, but that story's always stuck with me, and I've always found it to be particularly frustrating and sad. Not that any crime is any more senseless than the next, but I never could quite understand why, when faced with the possibility of getting in trouble for some financial improprieties, That some people will choose murder and death over owning up to it. So if you're a Disappeared fan, then you probably remember Liz and John's case. It was way back in their second season, I believe. Hilton Head Island is a part of the Lowcountry. So the couple, they were 45 and 47, respectively. They didn't have any kids. They were married, and their lives were very full with their careers and the businesses that they invested in. And one of those businesses included the Harbortown Yacht Basin. When they purchased that business, they kept on the company's longtime accounting firm called The Club Group. And the accountant that was in charge of their accounts was a gentleman by the name of Dennis Gerwing. He was 54 years old. And he was in charge of Liz and John's business at the uh, Yacht Basin. So John Calvert, he managed their businesses full time. He enjoyed being on the island at the Yacht Club. He was just a real friendly, social kind of guy. While Liz, if I remember correctly from the episode, she was a corporate attorney and she worked out of her office in Savannah, Georgia. Savannah and Hilton Head Island are not too far from each other over the state line. I wanted to say that they had a place to live in Savannah, like a home, but they also had a yacht docked in their club, which they lived in also, so they kind of split their time. Obviously, they were quite a successful couple. Like I said, they didn't have kids, so they really just lived for themselves and each other. They were able to build a very full life together. So of course, being a corporate attorney, Liz's skill sets also included being an accountant and she had actually been planning to leave her law practice behind and join John in managing their businesses and taking over all the accounting duties. And I think at the time that all of this took place, it was getting close to Liz making that change and that would mean that they would no longer be using the club group accounting firm and Dennis Gerwing would no longer be handling their accounts. In fact, I believe that's what they intended to do by the new year, to cut ties with the accounting firm at the beginning of January of 2008. And you know, as Liz prepared to transition, she began looking at the Yacht Club books, she immediately started seeing some discrepancies and things that weren't quite adding up. I'm not much of an accountant, like, at all, but I did take one accounting class in college, And I was under the impression that if you were good at it, there was a time when it was possible to get away with some creative accounting for quite a long time in order to cover up fraud and theft without anyone noticing. Because the bottom line always appeared to add up. Like I said, if you were good at it. But Liz Calvert was an attorney. She was meticulous and organized. And when she was going to start looking at the books, Things that weren't right weren't going to stay hidden for very long. Towards the end of 2007, Liz had noticed the problems with the accounting and she had begun to investigate. So Liz went to talk to Gerwing about some of the things that she was seeing, these inconsistencies and whatnot. And Gerwing told her that he would be able to clear everything up. He would gather their files and they would schedule a meeting to go over everything. And Liz did meet with Gerwing on two occasions, once on February 24, 2008, and a second time on March 2, 2008. But I do not think Liz was satisfied with whatever Gerwing's explanations were. And Liz was demanding to see some specific accounting documents and records. Gerwing apparently did not like Liz at all, from the time that she and John bought the business, he couldn't stand her. While I don't know exactly why he disliked her so much, but if I had to take a guess, I'd say that he was just a small, insecure man who couldn't stand the fact that Liz was a wealthy, successful attorney and businesswoman. Perhaps that was part of what motivated him to embezzle money from her and John. So at their second meeting, Gerwing told Liz to come back to his office the following day and he would have the paperwork ready. Oh, and he told her to have John join them as well. They were to meet around 6 p.m. the following afternoon. John got to Gerwing's office at the club group at 6, and Liz arrived about 15 to 20 minutes later. And from what the investigation revealed, both John and Liz's cell phones were shut off around that time too. Liz had called a friend of hers as she was driving over for the meeting with Gerwing. And told her about the meeting, and this friend was aware that Liz had some concerns about the accounting and that they were going to work it out. And that is the last person known to have spoken to Liz. I believe John mentioned to the yacht club manager that he was going to the meeting with Gerwing too. Liz and John Calvert were never seen or heard from again after that day. And to this day the couple remain missing. They were a very busy, prominent couple on Hilted Head Island, so their absence would be noticed right away the following morning. The next day, John failed to show up for work at the yacht club, which was very unusual for him, especially since he had a meeting that morning with his club manager. As the day went along, no one heard from the Calverts. The club manager sent another employee over to the Calverts' yacht to see if they were there, but they were not only one very hungry kitty cat. By the middle of the afternoon, the Yacht Club manager went ahead and called Liz's closest relative, which was her brother, and when he was unable to reach either of them or find them at their house, he reported them missing that night. Several people knew that Liz and John had a meeting with Dennis Gerwing on the afternoon of March 3rd, 2008, so that made him the last known person to see the couple. When investigators spoke to him the day after they were reported missing, he did say that they had a meeting and both Liz and John were in attendance and they all spoke for about 15 minutes. Gerwing claimed that Liz was the one who abruptly ended the meeting around 630 by claiming that she and John had dinner plans. After the meeting ended, Gerwing stated that he remained at his office for about another 10 minutes before heading home to his place located in Hilton Head Plantation, which appears to be some kind of private gated country club type of community. If you own a home there, you also pay all sorts of fees for the upkeep, the HOA, amenities, and whatever else is included. The Plantation Clubhouse is situated near the Spring Lake Lagoon and recreation area and this features fireplaces, an open gallery, an outdoor sound system, a veranda, and a view of the country club. It has a spring-like pavilion where there are fire pits, picnic tables, grills, a playground, and a gazebo. There's a third clubhouse overlooking Port Royal Sound with all the same amenities as the others. There's a swimming pool with cabanas, a lazy river, splash pads, and bathhouses. There are tennis courts, which require a membership. There's a pro shop as well as tennis socials mixers, round robins, and tennis lessons offered by pro tennis player Trevor Scott. There are a number of playgrounds for the kids, a recreation area near the lake for fishing, hiking, volleyball. There's a ball field that can be used for local teams to play baseball and soccer, but also available for the residents for casual games. There's seven miles of paths for walking, biking, or rollerblading. There's a farm where residents may grow their own fruits and vegetables, a fifty acre cypress tree conservancy, a whooping crane Conservancy, numerous lakes and lagoons available for fishing year round, aerobics, yoga classes, seminars for the residents throughout the year, including cooking, nature, fitness, and travel. There's a variety of clubs and organizations, women's club newcomers, dog club, gardening club, bridge club, farming, yachting, fishing, crafting, tennis, dance, artists, woodworking, among many others. And if you want to show off that you live in this fancy pants country club, you can get a personalized plantation license plate. So it sounds pretty nice. And I'm sure it's quite expensive for a single middle aged guy like Dennis Gerwing to live there. He's not married, he's an accountant, and he lives in an extremely expensive place. Well, as investigators were at Gerwing's office speaking to him, one of them happened to notice that he had a pretty significant cut on his hand. He said that he accidentally broke a wine bottle at home after which he drove to the store to get some band-aids. After that, he said he had gone back to his office to finish up some work and that he was there until midnight, at which point he went home and went to bed. Now that sounds super sus to me. But anyway, as investigators worked to corroborate what Gerwing had told them, they were finding a number of inconsistencies in his statements. They came to find that Liz and John were creatures of habit, and they rarely changed their routines. During the work week, they usually ate at the same restaurant and pretty much did so at the same time every day. But since they were last seen, there was no activity on any of their credit cards or ATM cards. Investigators also found that Gerwing lied about which way he drove to go home. He said he took the William Hilton Parkway, but his easy pass indicated that he had taken the Cross Island Parkway toll road. They also discovered some suspicious purchases that Gerwing had made the same day that the Calverts were last seen. Things like a shovel and three large drop cloths that were plenty big to wrap a couple of bodies up in. When he was asked about the drop cloths, he said that he was doing some painting at his house. However, his coworkers indicated that Gerwing was basically allergic to any sort of labor-type work and would have never painted anything. They also had video footage of Gerwing going to the drugstore to buy bandages, but a minute later, he had gone back in to buy a box of latex gloves. At his house, investigators found the leftover band-aids and gloves. Pieces of a nylon rope, and an empty gun holster. The SUV that Gerwing had been driving the day the Calverts vanished was missing its third row seat. He claimed that he moved some of his office furniture, but his coworkers again said Gerwing had done no such thing, and he would have never done this work himself. It was also discovered that Gerwing's cell phone had been turned off from about the time the Calverts vanished until the middle of the afternoon the following day. Eventually, investigators wanted to speak to him for a second time to ask some follow-up questions, but he said that he had answered all their questions the first time and directed them to speak to his attorney. Now, if I remember correctly, Gerwing had done some car juggling And in doing so, he had solicited the help of his office assistant. I did try looking for the disappeared episode to try and refresh my memory on this, but I couldn't find it. But at some point, one of the Calvert's cars was discovered parked several miles away. So ostensibly, the person responsible for their disappearance had moved it and then needed some help getting to his car or or placing his car there at the location ahead of time so he'd be able to make his way back home. Gerwing's assistant had a hand in giving him rides to dropping off his car. I think he had told her that he was having it detailed, and that would be the SUV. But anyway, in all of the running around, Gerwing managed to get his vehicle detailed and abandon the Calvert's vehicle. Gerwing owned two cars of his own. On March eleventh, two 2008, The police held a press conference and publicly announced that Dennis Gerwing was a person of interest in the Calvert's disappearance. At that point, Gerwing's attorney and his boss were unable to get in touch with him anymore. Police were called and with the help of the fire department, they went over to Gerwing's home and they broke in. He was discovered in an upstairs bathroom. Gerwing was naked and dead. He was in the bathtub, laying on top of a comforter covered in blood. He had cut his wrists, his inner thigh, and his inner calf, as well as the left and right sides of his neck. A steak knife was found next to him. I remember the disappeared episode, it said that the bathroom was covered in blood spatter. And the patterns and the lack of any other footprints leading out of the bathroom made it clear that Gerwing died in the bathroom alone. He had consumed a large amount of Benadryl. He did leave a suicide note, where he admitted that he embezzled the money and that he did it on his own, that nobody else at the accounting firm had a hand in it. However, Gerwing did not mention the Calverts. He didn't deny killing them, but he also didn't admit it either, nor did he leave any information as to where they could be found. An autopsy concluded that Dennis Gerwing's death was a suicide. I did check for updates, and the Calverts still are missing to this day. And I really appreciate you all listening to this case. I've always wanted to share it with you. And there is another disappeared episode that I recently rewatched on YouTube, I think it was. And Jerry S in our discussion group on Facebook reminded me that I had talked about covering the story not too long ago because he is from the area that this story took place. I might go ahead and do that one on Patreon. I mean, why not, right? January has snuck up on us very quickly. It's the first today, it's January 1st. I'll wish you all a happy new year at the end. But let's get on with today's bonus. This is a vacation series episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the House of Murdoch. So the Calverts and the Murdochs cases took place in the Low Country area of South Carolina. According to its website, SouthCarolinaLowCountry.com, the region has its own culture, geography, architecture, economy, and cuisine, it has a unique landscape, a unique climate, and it is known for its slow-paced southern lifestyle of its residents. And those are the same qualities that make it popular amongst tourists as well. Low country refers to the areas of the state that are below the fall line or the sandhills of the ancient sea coast. The sandhills are referred to as upcountry, and that region has its own unique geography and culture too. The Lowcountry seems to be a bit loosely defined. It consists of Beaufort, Colleton, Hampton, and Jasper counties. And the additional counties of Berkeley, Charleston, and Dorchester are also considered a part of the Lowcountry. And the Low Country is where the Murdoch family has been one of the most prominent and influential families for at least a century. In most of the cases we cover on the show in the United States, it's the district attorney who files the charges against a person who commits a crime in their county. And it's usually one county. But the low country, which consists of numerous counties, calls their district attorney the solicitor. And the solicitor in the 14th District of South Carolina is responsible for five counties. Three members of the Murdoch family have held the office of solicitor consecutively from 1920 through 2006. And that would be a total of 86 years. People actually began calling it Murdoch County. And when something like that happens, it usually goes hand in hand with being regarded as a corrupt justice system. And when somebody is faced with criminal charges, most of the time, attorneys and their clients just opt to settle, to plead out. The solicitor, of course, wants to win every time. So when there's nobody to challenge the family, that's pretty much how things went. On top of that, the family also had their own private practice. So they had a stronghold on the low country every which way to Sunday. There are a lot of names to know, which is mostly why I'm doing this, so I could try to work this out for myself. So I will try to remember to periodically remind ourselves of who's who in this case. So we're not going to go all the way back to the Mayflower or whenever the Murdochs made their way over from Great Britain, but rather we'll begin with Randolph Murdoch Sr., Born February 28, 1887. He first founded his own law firm in 1910, and then he became the 14th District Solicitor in 1920, and he was also the publisher of the local newspaper called the Hampton County Herald. Randolph Sr. held the position of solicitor for 20 years until his tragic death on July 19, 1940, when his car collided with a train. He was 53 years old. His son, Randolph Murdoch Jr., born January 9, 1915, succeeded his father upon his death and held the position of solicitor of the 14th District for a total of 42 years, from 1940 until he retired in 1986. He was apparently quite the animated character, as he often captivated the courtroom by dramatically reenacting the murders that he prosecuted. There was a very brief time where he was facing some charges where he had to resign from his post temporarily, but once he was acquitted, he was right back in office. He passed away February 5th, 1998 at the age of 83. Murdoch Jr. was succeeded by his son, Randolph Murdoch III, Born October twenty-fifth, 1939, he became solicitor in 1986 and held the office until he retired in 2006. In all of those 86 years, only Randolph Jr. ran for the office of solicitor opposed twice. Other than that, the three generations of Burdocks ran unopposed. Randolph III's retirement would mark the end of the Murdoch stronghold on the office of solicitor. Randolph III had four children, three sons and one daughter. His sons were Randolph IV, who goes by Randy, Richard Alexander, who goes by Alec, and John. I couldn't find the sister's name. I'm sure it's floating around somewhere, but she really doesn't have anything to do with anything going on. With anybody involved in any drama in her family. So I guess we don't need to know her name. Randy and Alex did go to law school. Both of them became partners with the family law firm, but neither of them would run for solicitor. The current solicitor of the 14th district is a gentleman by the name of Duffy Stone. And as of August of 2021, He has no involvement in any case in his district involving the Murdoch family. When he was first asked to recuse himself because he had connections to the Murdoch, he refused to. Alex Murdoch was a part-time volunteer prosecutor working for Duffy Stone, and his predecessor, Alex's dad, Randolph III, he was actually still being paid for his part-time association with the prosecutor's office until he died. So that must be nice, right? You get to retire, you get to collect your retirement benefits, and you still get paid as if you never retired at all. Nobody really knows what the nature of the work that he was being paid for, so it's shady. But Apparently, that's par for the course for the Murdochs, I guess. However, on August 11th, 2021, Duffy Stone sent a letter to SLED, which is the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, asking them to take care of the cases involving the Murdochs. And there would be several cases that we're going to talk about here that SLED is in charge of. And there are lots of dead people. So the last Murdoch who held the office of solicitor, Randolph III, died of natural causes on June 10th, 2021 at the age of 81. His death would come only three days after the mysterious death of two other members of the Murdoch family, which we will get to in a little bit. The Murdoch who became the central figure in all this drama, chaos, and death that had been following the family around for a couple of years by then, possibly even a little bit longer was Alec Murdoch, born June 17th, 1958. He, along with his other siblings, opted to end the Murdoch reign as the 14th District Solicitor, but instead they all went to law school and they joined the family firm. Well, two of them did. And he volunteered part-time in the Solicitor's Office. I don't exactly know what it means to quote-unquote volunteer, but from what I can see, It doesn't appear that anybody in the Murdoch family does anything out of the goodness of their heart, so I suspect that there was some kind of perk or kickback for this supposed volunteer time. Alec Murdoch was married to Maddie Murdoch, and together they had two sons, Richard Alexander Jr., born in 1996 and is referred to as Buster, and Paul Terry, who usually goes by Paul but apparently becomes someone named Timmy when he's drinking, and he was born in 1999. We'll get into all of that a little bit later in more detail. And that's pretty much the breakdown of the branch of the family tree that we are going to concern ourselves with for the purposes of this episode. Alec, Maggie, Buster, and Paul. So the law firm that was founded in 1910 by the very first Murdoch to become solicitor, Randolph Sr., that eventually became a partnership called Peters, Murdoch, Parker, Ellsroth, and Dietrich. Each of the succeeding Murdochs who became solicitor also joined the family law firm while also holding the office. Alex did volunteer at the solicitor's office, but there would be no fourth generation to actually hold the office, and it's not looking like a Murdoch ever will again. Alec did join the family firm sometime in the 1990s. The law firm mainly handled personal injury lawsuits. Clearly, I am not an attorney, so there are plenty of things that I know nothing about. And one of those things is called forum shopping. What this means is is that a person filing a lawsuit is allowed to choose where their case will be heard, meaning that they're able to try and determine which court would be most likely to give them the best possible judgment in their favor. There might be a certain jurisdiction that has a reputation for ruling much more favorably for the plaintiff's case, and those courts would bring in more lawsuits because there was no restriction that the case needed to be filed in the jurisdiction in which the legal issue took place. For example, there was a time when I worked in Long Beach, California, but I didn't live in Long Beach. And I had brought a computer that I owned to be repaired at a shop in the city of Long Beach. And after they charged me several hundreds of dollars to fix it, and this was before computers were becoming so much more affordable, the computer repair shop actually never solved my problem. And I ended up taking it to Best Buy, who ended up fixing it properly. I demanded a refund from the repair shop in Long Beach. They ignored me, so I filed a small claims against them, which I had to do in Long Beach because that's where the issue took place as opposed to closer to where I lived at the time. So the Murdoch's Law Firm had been able to take advantage of a law that had been enacted in the early 2000s that allowed for this forum shopping. They rose to prominence as a result of this law. As written, the law allowed for residents of South Carolina to file a lawsuit in any county in which a company owned a business or properties where they conducted business in South Carolina, no matter where the personal injury happened. In one of those counties located in the 14th District, Hampton County specifically, the judges rarely transferred any lawsuits to other jurisdictions, and the attorneys were known to take advantage of their subpoena powers. Before long, if someone found themselves on the defendant's side of a lawsuit in the 14th district, there was little to no chance that they were going to win. That was the power that the Murdochs had. They had power in both the public and private side of the judicial system. They didn't get rich working in public office. They got rich off of being able to guarantee wins in civil court. One of the law firm's favorite defendants to file injury lawsuits against is a company called CSX Transportation, which is a freight railroad company that operates in the United States and Canada. Remember, Murdoch Sr. was killed by a train in 1940, so that may have played into why the family were interested in seeking justice for anyone injured or killed in railroad accidents. The Murdoch family law firm sued CSX so many times on behalf of employees who may have been injured on the job and it had become such a liability that CSX Transportation decided to halt all operations in that area of South Carolina, costing many people their jobs in that area. Ultimately, this led to an end of the laws that allowed for forum shopping. I looked into the Murdoch Law Firm's website And they have a whole page dedicated to their work suing railroad companies. And this is what it said. Peters, Murdoch, Parker, Ellsroth, and Dietrich, abbreviated P-M-P-E-D. Sometimes it's referred to as pimped, but I'm not going to call it that. I will call it P-M-P-E-D has a nationwide reputation for successfully representing railroad employees and others who have been injured or lost a loved one as a result of negligence of railroad companies. We have represented the estates of individuals killed at railroad crossings as a result of obstructed sight distances, malfunctioning gates, malfunctioning lights, excessive train speeds, and the failure of train crews to properly sound the train horn. For nearly 100 years, we have handled claims against railroad companies, amassing a library of materials to aid in the prosecution of railroad claims and producing substantial verdicts for our clients. So they had been so well known for this that the law firm became known as the house that CSX built. The firm took advantage of the forum shopping until it no longer could. And perhaps that may be one of the reasons that the Murdochs weren't quite making as much money as they once had. So, with that, along with none of the fourth generation of Murdochs carrying on the role of solicitor, the power that they once had could have been waning. This, of course, is speculation on my part, but there's usually a domino effect when things happen the way that they happen for the Murdochs. With the last Murdoch holding the office of solicitor in 2006, the forum shopping laws changing in 2007, and then the recession and housing market crash began in 2008. I'm fairly certain that the Murdochs were hit hard financially. In the meantime, Alec Murdoch, as I mentioned earlier, he's working for the law firm, and he's also supposedly volunteering for solicitor Duffy Stone. As it turned out, Whenever Alec saw a case that he wanted to prosecute, he took it. He would just go in and tell Duffy that he wanted to prosecute this case or that case, and they'd let him do it. While at the same time, he would be filing civil lawsuits for the firm. I don't know exactly what the implications of that are, but it's not really a thing that ever happens. I mean, like, nobody does this. Nobody gets to go into the prosecutor's office and be like, oh, I want to be prosecutor today. I kind of like this case or I kind of like that case. And everyone just shrugs and is like, okay. I mean, that's a lot of power. For the most part, though, Alec Murdoch would not become a household name until maybe 2021, possibly a little bit earlier. But things really started crumbling in the summer of 2021. But we're not going to start there. We're going to go back in time a little bit where people connected with the Murdoch family started ending up dead. We'll work our way to the point where the Murdoch family name would be thrust into the headlines and into all of our ear holes on podcasts. I'm going to take this in chronological order because kind of like Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell, there was an event that became sort of the watershed moment where everything that they had done, came to light for this pair of doomsday zealots it was a louisiana grandma named kay woodcock who wanted to know where the hell her grandson jj was at police in idaho came knocking on Valow's door she told lies and then she ran and then people were like okay but she has two kids with her J.J. was her adopted son that she had with her by then dead ex-husband, Charles, but also her own biological daughter, 17-year-old Tylee Ryan, whose father, also dead. Every time this case turned a corner, there was somebody else who ended up dead. Daybell's wife, Valo's brother, all of her husbands, and ultimately, both J.J. and Tylee were discovered dead. They were defiled, mutilated, burned. I mean, it's awful. We saw this story unfolding in real time, but working backwards, as more and more dead bodies turned up everywhere this couple went, it just got more and more complicated. And it's the same thing with the Murdochs. And their watershed moment, ironically, would be just like Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. A double murder. It took place in June of 2021, just six months ago. Working backwards, more deaths would be revealed. So we're going to start from the beginning and work our way to what's going on with it today. We'll begin with a death that took place in 2015. And it really wasn't looked at all that closely until the investigation into Alex Murdoch began taking shape in 2021. Sled had released a statement to the media towards the end of June of 2021 that they were reopening the case of the death of a 19 year old six years earlier. The young man was discovered dead alongside a rural road in Hampton County in the early morning hours of July 8, 2015. A 911 call came in from a passerby named Ronnie, who was headed to work, when he saw a body in the middle of the road just before 4 in the morning. He later told police that he usually drives cautiously along that stretch of road because of deer that might be crossing. It was apparent that the person was dead, but he was in the middle of the road and the passerby was concerned that a vehicle might run him over, and he did not want to move the body. In fact, he really wanted to get the heck out of there. According to the first officer who arrived at the scene after the paramedics, the dead man was lying in the road, but he did not appear to have any sort of injuries indicative of having been hit by a car, such as scrapes or road rash. His clothing was still on him. Nothing was ripped. It was all intact and still on his body the way that he would have normally worn them. And he still had his shoes on. And we know that when someone is hit by a car, people are usually knocked out of their shoes. The young man's phone was discovered in his pocket and the only apparent injuries that were visible immediately were some head injuries. The dead man would eventually be identified as 19-year-old Stephen Smith. The only light along the road would have come from vehicles that would have their headlights on. There were no street lamps or any other kind of lighting nearby the location where Stephen lay dead. Because it was thought that Stephen was hit by a passing vehicle, investigators searched for evidence of that, but nothing was found that indicated a vehicle had collided with him, such as broken pieces having come from the car, like a broken blinker lights or maybe a rear view mirror, or I mean a side view mirror that snapped off or even chipped paint. We've seen episodes of like forensic files where a person is struck by a car and pieces of the car's blinker or reflectors are found, broken pieces of the headlight or pieces of paint. But in Stephen's case, there was nothing of the sort. In addition to that, as mentioned earlier, there were no injuries anywhere on Stephen's body except to his head. And there were a couple of abrasions on his arms and his knuckles and his face, which would be highly unusual for somebody having been struck by a vehicle. And to me, the abrasions on the arms, knuckles and face sounds like a fist fight, not being run down by a vehicle. The passerby, Ronnie, he was actually kind of worried about being around the area where the body was found and wanted to get out of there quickly because his initial thought was that Stephen had been shot and it did not look like it had taken place all that long ago, and he feared that whomever it was that killed Stephen might still be around. Later on, the coroner described an injury above Stephen's right eye on his forehead that it appeared to be like a hole, which is why Ronnie thought that Stephen had been shot in the head, but it wasn't clear what caused the hole. Later on, it was determined to not be a gunshot wound. Stephen's shoes were also not tied very tightly, so if he was hit by a car, he definitely would have been knocked out of them. Stephen's car was found about 3 miles or 4.8 kilometers from where his body was found. All the doors were locked, and the keys were also found in Stephen's pocket but his wallet was inside the vehicle and the vehicle would not start. The gas tank door had been opened and the gas cap was removed. In the meantime, a woman named Sandra Smith got up later that morning to find that she was unable to get in touch with her 19 year old son, Stephen. Now she had heard some news that morning about a body being discovered along a local road, not too far from where Stephen lived with his twin sister, Stephanie. They kind of split their time, I believe, between their mom's house and their dad's house, and at this point in time, I believe they were staying with their dad, which was close to where the body was found. But when Sandra called her daughter, the twin sister, she was told that Stephen failed to come home the evening before. Sandra tried to stay calm while she tried to figure out what was going on, hoping for the best, bracing herself for the worst the worst being that the body found on the road might be her son, who isn't answering his phone and is nowhere to be found. Eventually, law enforcement were able to confirm for the family that the body discovered that morning was, in fact, her son, Stephen. However, the investigation into Stephen's death really kind of fizzled out and eventually grew cold. Nothing more would be said or done about his death until a pair of deaths six years later that would trigger a re-investigation into Stevens, Though the reasons for that is just another mysterious layer of this whole entire story. And I'll tell you more about the double murder that caused Sled to take another look at Stephen's death when we get to it in the chronology. Stephen was openly gay, though it seems as if one of the few people who weren't in on this was Stephen's dad. But it didn't seem as though Stephen went to great lengths to hide the fact that he was gay because his sister described him as very outgoing and flamboyant. And whenever he went anywhere, he needed to make sure his makeup was on point. She also said that he was popular in high school and had lots of friends, but there wasn't anyone in particular that she would say was his best friend. But at the same time, he always had his twin sister with him. So it's kind of like a built-in best friend. They had just started college the fall before in 2014. But Stephanie said that about two weeks into the summer session, she had noticed a dramatic change in her brother's personality and that he started staying out much later than he normally did and that he began skipping classes, which was something he never used to do. And his mom and sister really didn't know where he was when he was gone or out late. Stephanie did tell investigators that she knew her brother had begun making profiles on dating websites, including Craigslist. But she did claim that it wasn't for any sort of hookup, it was mostly for just looking for friends. I'm skeptical of that because, well, I mean, for obvious reasons. So, in Stephen's car, A residential gate pass was found belonging to a man that he had met up with a week before he died. The man's name was printed on the pass. So his mom looked him up on social media and sent him a message following Stephen's death and investigators followed up with him. The man said that he answered an ad on Craigslist that Stephen had posted and they subsequently had a one-night stand, and this happened a week before he died. This man was pretty forthcoming and upfront with both Stephen's mom and with police. He was cooperative and was not considered a suspect. But then a man named Mark Bickard came forward and claimed that he was in a committed relationship with Stephen. After Stephen's death, Mark, who was 47 years old, and that's 28 years older than Stephen, He told Stephen's family and police that he was his boyfriend, but Stephen's sister, Stephanie, denies that her brother was in a relationship with that man or with anyone for that matter, insisting that her brother never had a boyfriend ever. But she said, if anything, Mark was most likely nothing more than a sugar daddy and that Stephen may have been using him for money. Now, apparently, according to Mark, he and Steven had some kind of dust up over each other having ads on Craigslist while supposedly being in a relationship. Mark had seen Steven's ad but claimed that the ad Steven may have seen that he had was a result of him being hacked and someone messing with him, insisting that once their relationship advanced to the point where they had been talking about getting married, Mark claimed, all of his profiles were deleted. None of Stephen's friends knew of Mark. They knew nothing of a boyfriend, much less him being engaged to anybody. The last day that Stephen was seen alive, his sister had gone out to help him start his car in the afternoon around 5 p.m. because it seemed as though the battery died. She said it appeared that someone may have purposely loosened the cables on his battery. She followed him in her vehicle as they drove home. Stephen then got cleaned up and left about an hour later. He didn't say where he was going, and that would be the last time that Stephanie ever saw her brother alive. A classmate of Stephen spoke to him that same day, somebody who attended college with him. She had spoken to him a little bit later in the evening, but he didn't mention to her what he was up to that night. Mark claimed that he had spoken to Stephen numerous times throughout the day before he died mostly via text messages. There was a point when Stephen told Mark over the phone that someone was bothering him or following him from a convenience store at a gas station, that it was two guys driving a pickup truck. And as they talked on the phone, Mark was listening to what was going on in the background, that he could hear the sounds of vehicles passing by. And he thought maybe Stephen was walking, but he said that he wasn't. Mark believes that the final text messages that they exchanged were a few minutes after 3.30 in the morning and that he was told by Stephen that he was on his way to Mark's house. And that was just about 20 minutes or so before his body was spotted by the passerby, Ronnie. Mark was investigated pretty thoroughly too, but as far as I can see, because of a really spotty memory and a history of drug addiction, his ability to recall is severely inhibited and unreliable. But based on what. He did tell law enforcement about their phone calls and text messages. It was enough for them to feel like he was being forthcoming and cooperative. And Mark is not considered a suspect in Stephen's death. So initially, the thought was as Stephen was driving along the road. His car broke down and it appeared based on what they found that he had run out of gas and he began walking. This doesn't make sense to me because why would he have opened the gas tank door and removed the gas cap and then started walking, but went walking without his wallet if he intended to buy gas? He had also been at as many as two different gas stations earlier in the evening, according to his sister and his alleged boyfriend, but he didn't bother to get any gas at all. Investigators eventually settled on Stephen's death being a result of him being struck and killed by a hit and run driver but his family weren't buying it based on the lack of evidence that usually points to a hit-and-run type accident. Stephen's mom did not think that he would be walking along the road like that, that he was familiar with shortcuts and would have gone off the road and through the wooded areas, and if he was walking on the road and heard a vehicle approaching, he would have quickly got off to the side to avoid being hit. Eventually, the pathologist concluded that the wound of Stephen's head was not caused by a gunshot, And based on the information that was provided, it looked as though the hole in his head would have been caused by him being struck by a side view mirror on a vehicle that hit him. Nobody believes that. And it doesn't make any sense for Stephen to have a hole on his forehead if he was struck by a passing vehicle. How would the injury be to the front of his head and not the back? And why would Stephen just stand there and allow himself to be run down? Why were his shoes still on? Why did he not have any road rash or torn clothing? Why was there no debris from the vehicle that supposedly hit him? The Highway Patrol investigators do not believe that this was a hit and run, not for a minute. That ruling came from Sled and the pathologist. In fact, the Highway Patrol believes that this scene was staged, and I tend to agree. They attempted to speak to the pathologist two weeks after Stephen had died, but she was hostile. And she said she made her ruling because Stephen was found in the middle of the road. And if there was evidence that he was killed in another way, it wasn't her job to figure that out. It was the job of law enforcement. And if they've got the evidence, then prove it. To the highway patrol, it appeared that the wound could have been caused by a strike to the head with a baseball bat. For the time being, this cause of death was going to be ruled a vehicle hit and run. Rumors started circulating that Stephen's death had something to do with him being gay. And this is when the Murdoch name began being floated. But before anything would become of it, Stephen's death was quickly tucked away. According to his mom, evidence started disappearing. Everything was kept very hush-hush. And with that, the power and privilege of being a Murdoch has strongly been suggested to be the reason why Stephen's case was shelved and grew cold. But why? What connection was there between the Murdoch's and Stephen's murder? Nobody was willing to touch the case, and it lay dormant for six years, until the Murdoch family name was thrust into the headlines in the middle of 2021. You see, Buster Murdoch, Alex Murdoch's oldest son, was classmates with Stephen. When his name came up in 2015 as being connected to Stephen, the investigation was shut down. Allegedly, Stephen and Buster were friends, possibly more. But everyone knew that if a Murdoch was involved, that they'd never be able to move their investigation forward because of the prominence of the family. But the whispers and rumors persisted. So, the rumor that was going around is that Buster Murdoch and some of his friends had been hanging out and they were driving down the same road that Stephen had been on. but they noticed his car was broken down and abandoned along the side of the road. And as they went along, they eventually found him walking, at which point they stopped and had some kind of interaction with him where they were going to mess with him or harass him in some way. And in doing so, they caused this massive injury to his forehead. Killing him. And this rumor was spreading like crazy. And investigators were convinced that there had to be something to it, that someone knew what happened. They just needed to figure it out. And everyone who heard the rumors about Buster Murdoch, they were nervous about even mentioning a Murdoch being involved because of the influence that the family had had. The Highway Patrol investigator who talked to more than a dozen people who said that they heard Buster was involved. They never actually spoke to Buster himself. The investigators tried calling and emailing, but never got a response. And there is no information if there was ever any further attempt to contact him. And it just kind of got forgotten, I guess. And another shady thing, Buster's uncle, Randolph IV, the one who goes by Randy, Alex's brother, he suddenly appeared in Stephen's death investigation. Like I said, I find this shady as hell. Randy Murdoch called Stephen's dad the very same day that he was found dead and told him that he would provide him legal counsel free of charge. Now, remember, these attorneys are like ambulance chasers, right? This is exactly the kind of stuff that they do. But it's like a super conflict of interest if his own nephew is a suspect and he wants to try to represent the victim's family. And this gets even shadier, if you can believe this. About five months after Stephen's death, a tip was called in to the highway patrol investigators, naming another suspect that could be investigated in the case. The tipster said that his son said that he knew of another person who may have been the one to run down Stephen. But the tipster also said that he was calling at the behest of Randy Murdoch. So, sounds like a case of attempting to throw the investigation off into another direction to take some of the heat off of Buster. Stephen's case went cold and it would stay that way until more events in the Murdoch family in June of 2021, would cause SLED to take a fresh look at Stevens' unsolved murder. Stevens' sexuality is strongly believed to have been a likely motive behind what happened to him. When it comes to Buster Murdoch, whatever connection there may have been, if Buster was a homophobe or if he was a bully and wanted to pick on him, or if perhaps they had some sort of involvement with one another, It's all rumors. I have to admit to you listening that I've not spent very much time in the southern parts of the United States. I've driven across the country twice with my family. Destination one time was Florida where my parents owned a condo in Daytona Beach. The destination the second time was Virginia where we have family. We've driven up and down the East Coast. My dad bought an RV when he retired. You know, my dad was a lot older. He was 50 when I was born, so he retired when I was about 10. So I wasn't exactly thrilled with these road trips, and I could kick myself for not being a better sport about it. I think I would have liked it more if I would have been able to drive. And I'd give anything to go cross-country in an RV again with my dad. He passed away in 2007. And to be able to bring my daughter with us, I think that she would like it. But anyway, I was young. I didn't know anything about the culture of the South as we went along. And this was more than 35 years ago. And I haven't been any further than Texas since. And I'm from California. And through and through, it's one of the more progressive states. At least that's what my opinion is. You might not agree. So I was talking about this case with one of the listeners in the Facebook group. Her name's Elizabeth T. She's in Tennessee, and she suggested that I think it was her that suggested to me that the LBGTQ plus communities in the South are discriminated against. I guess I wasn't surprised, but at the same time, it's hard to imagine what that climate is like when you've lived for so long in an LBGTQ plus friendly area, and it's not just California. I found an October 2021 article in USA Today that named Nevada as the top number one LGBTQ plus friendly state in the country, while Alabama ranked the worst. What it means to be among the worst is the states that do not have the laws that make it mandatory to report hate crimes. And Alabama, along with the other worst states, do not report crimes motivated by sexual orientation or gender identity as being a hate crime. And there are other laws that have a negative impact on the LBGTQ community, like the governor of Alabama making it legal for adoption agencies to deny placing a child in an LBGTQ family. As for South Carolina, according to UCLA's School of Law website, South Carolina civil rights laws do not include sexual orientation or gender identity, which leaves the LGBTQ plus communities vulnerable to being discriminated against. But the website did say that public opinion in South Carolina suggests that the community supports changes in laws that protect that community, which would be a step in the right direction for a southern state. But the discrimination still runs deep, and that this is what may have been going on with Stephen, that he was possibly being harassed because he was gay. We may find more out about this as the investigation has been reopened as of June of 2021, and I will get to the events that precipitated that reinvestigation. And all of this is to say is that this may have been the motive behind it, that no matter, you know, how progressive we think the times are getting, that in the South, there is still a lot of discrimination against the LBGTQ plus communities. And Stephen may have perhaps been a victim of that. And that his death may actually be a hate crime. Okay, so the next thing we're going to discuss is another death investigation that was reopened by SLED in September of 2021. That was triggered by yet another stunning event that occurred involving yet another member of the Murdoch family on September 4th of 2021. I will get to that incident when we come to it in our chronology here. But the death being reinvestigated was the February 2018 death of longtime housekeeper and nanny for Alex and Maggie Murdoch, 57-year-old Gloria Satterfield her death was reported to be a slip-and-fall-down-some-stairs type of accident. Gloria had been working for Alec and Maggie Murdoch for two decades at the time of her death. She was considered a part of the family, as she pretty much helped raise Buster and Paul. And she had two sons of her own, Tony Satterfield and Brian Harriet. On Friday, February 2nd, 2018, it was a normal workday for Gloria at the Murdoch home, until it wasn't. Gloria had fallen and was severely injured. It was reported that she tripped over the dogs, the family dogs, Labradors, who may have been zooming through the house or playing too rough, causing Gloria to lose her footing and tumble down a set of stairs. It would be Alex Murdoch himself who described how the accident happened to her sons. According to Alec, sorry, did I just call him Alex? It is really tripping me out how his name is spelled Alex, but we're calling him Alec, and I was going to try to not mess that up, but I think I just did. I knew I was going to do that, but okay. Alec, according to him, Gloria fell, and from that point forward, she would never be able to speak as to what actually happened. So whatever it was that Alec would say, everyone took his word for it. There was absolutely no reason to question his version as to what happened, which he said was a fall down the stairs. And it was his dogs that caused her to lose her balance. Gloria was transported by helicopter to a hospital where doctors uh, would attempt to save her life. But as a result of the fall, She had suffered brain damage and she would not be able to recover from that. Gloria remained hospitalized for 17 days until she passed away from her injuries on February 19th, 2018. During those 17 days, Maggie Murdoch would be the only one from the family to visit Gloria. Alex, Buster, and Paul visited her exactly zero times. The woman they claimed was a part of their family. And despite the fact the accident happened inside their home while she was working for them, and Alec even admitted that his dogs caused her fall, they did not offer any financial assistance to her sons, not one cent, nor did they help in any way to cover the cost of her funeral. This family is pretty much low country royalty and Gloria, a lifelong dedicated housekeeper, nanny, and mother, and the Murdochs just couldn't be bothered with it. But it seemed as though Alec did have a little something up his sleeve that he would approach Gloria's sons, Tony and Brian, about. Remember, Alec is one of the most powerful and prominent attorneys in the region. He is not only a personal injury attorney, He is also an on-again, off-again county prosecutor. And it's worth mentioning that at least one of Gloria's sons can be considered to be vulnerable because of some mental or cognitive deficiencies. And if we're going to be honest and real about this, then we have to know that the Murdochs probably did not hold Gloria's children in very high regard. They probably looked down on them, having a very modest upbringing with far far less means than the Murdochs. To Gloria's sons, Alex Murdoch probably seemed like a titan as an attorney. He talked to them at their mom's funeral and he assured them to not worry. He would help them. And her two boys would trust Alec implicitly. When the funeral was over, Alec took Tony and Brian to an attorney that he knew named Corey Fleming. He told them that Corey would represent them in their filing of a wrongful death lawsuit against himself, Alec. Well, as it turns out, Corey Fleming just wasn't any attorney that Alec knew in passing. He was one of Alec's best friends. So let's get this straight. Alec recommended an attorney who was Alec's best friend, his roommate from back in college, and his youngest son's godfather to represent Tony and Brian in their filing of a lawsuit against Alec. He's helping them sue himself. Shady, but okay. Alec readily took responsibility for the dogs causing Gloria's fall and assured her sons that they would be able to benefit from a very large settlement from Alec's insurance. And this is yet another thing that just doesn't ever happen. Nobody helps somebody sue themselves. Tony and Brian had absolutely no reason to question Alec. They would also have no clue as to what to do if not for Alec. Now, another super shady thing happened after Alec found the sons a lawyer to sue himself. The vice president of the Palmetto State Bank, a gentleman by the name of Chad Westendorf, was named as the representative of Gloria Satterfield's estate, effectively replacing her son, Tony, who had been the representative since she passed away. This is another thing that rarely happens because it's almost always the relative of the decedent who represents the estate. Oh, and surprise, surprise, Chad Westerndorf is also BFFs with Alec and Corey. Alec, Chad, and Corey. I seriously cannot think of a douchier sounding trio. Alec knew that Tony and Brian would go along with whatever he suggested because they placed all of their trust in him. They knew this man their whole entire lives. One day later, Chad Westendorf, one day, this is one day after he started representing the estate. Chad Westendorf accepted an early settlement in the amount of $505,000 on behalf of Tony and Brian. And I bet it doesn't surprise any of you that Gloria's boys received exactly $0. And I also would bet that it doesn't surprise any of you that yet another event involving yet another Murdoch A year later, in 2019, would trigger an investigation into how and why a $505,000 settlement had been reached in Gloria's death, yet Tony and Brian had no idea that that had even happened. And I will go over that event as we go along here in our chronology. The media reported on the settlement, and Gloria's boys were told by someone who saw it on the news. And this new investigation into the wrongful death settlement that was quietly reached unbeknownst to the decedent's children would reveal that the douchebag triplets, Alec, Corey, and Chad sued, settled, and swindled for way more than just $505,000. In the two years or so following Gloria's death, with the three of them doing all of their illegal legal maneuvering, they managed to receive another $4.5 million in settlement money for Gloria's wrongful death. How do you sue for the same wrongful death multiple times and receive multiple payouts? I don't know. But if you live on planet Murdoch, it's apparently a thing. Now, of course, all of this money, with the exception of the attorney's fees or whatever, was supposed to have been paid to Tony and Brian, Gloria's kids. But when you're working for and with the Murdochs, your fees are apparently 100% of whatever settlement is reached. And the fact is, is that Tony and Brian had no clue about any of it. They'd put all their faith in Alec and just kind of waited for things to happen. When a pair of new attorneys took over representing Tony and Brian, they quickly began to get to the bottom of what happened and where the money went, with the goal, of course, of getting it to the right people, Gloria's boys. There was absolutely nothing above board about what Alec, Corey, and Chad had done. None of the paperwork was filled out the way it should have been. Things that needed to be approved weren't. Alec is believed to have been the one calling all of the shots in the background with every move that he made being meant to ensure that the money went where he wanted it to go and that none of it would go to Tony and Brian. There were so many things that were not done properly that in a normal jurisdiction, red flags would have gone up everywhere and this would have been put to a stop. But not in Murdoch country. Alec. The defendant in the wrongful death lawsuit is the one deciding what happens to the settlement money? How is that even a thing? Well, Alec opened a bank account, a Bank of America, under the name Forge. And this was meant to closely resemble an actual and very reputable company called Forge Consulting. And settlement money being deposited into an account believed to belong to Forge Consulting would not draw attention from anyone as it was something that would typically happen. But the bank account Alec opened was meant to appear to be Forge Consulting, but it was not. It was pretty much a personal bank account belonging to Alec. And after Corey and Chad were paid their share of the settlement, and it appears that Chad, when he wrote the payout check to Forge, that He knew deep down that it wasn't going to Forge Consulting, but he just did it. It's not something that this guy would have overlooked. But anyway, Alec would end up getting away with his creative scam for about three years. Even though it was closely looked at a year after Gloria's death, he was still able to hide behind the wall that is the Murdoch family name. But like I've said, at every step of the way as we've gone along here. 2021 would see that wall crumble. Ultimately, the money trail with the settlement from Gloria's death was pretty easy to follow. The attorneys representing Gloria's kids have been able to recover approximately $6.5 from the various individuals involved in stealing the settlement money. Chad and Corey gave back what they were paid for for their roles in the scheme to steal the money and the institutions that they all worked for paid out additional settlement money on top of that. And because the investigation into Gloria's death and the forged account that Alec used to deposit the money, additional fraudulent deposits into that account were discovered and are now being investigated. But no money has actually been returned to anyone from Alec himself. In fact, His attorneys have said that since Gloria's sons have received more money than what Alec ever took from them, that he shouldn't be obligated to pay them back anything, which is absolutely absurd. And their attorneys are not going to stop fighting for every single penny that Alec owes them. Another question that has been raised since all of this came to light this year is what about Gloria's death? As it turns out, the coroner, who should have been involved in the investigation into her death, was actually never told how she died in South Carolina. The coroner is the one who was supposed to determine the manner and cause of death. Are you all ready for some more shadiness since Gloria was airlifted an hour away and died seventeen days after the accident, for whatever reason the coroner in the county where she fell was never informed of the death, and her death certificate listed her official cause of death as natural and the result of a stroke. The time from the fall to the time that she died could have caused there to be this lapse as to what brought about her death, so it seemed like it was something that was easy to overlook and very convenient for Alec. Of all the people who failed, to get away with a staircase death. Here comes Alec, letting us all know how it's done right. And he managed to get her death written off as natural, even though he was the one who actually told everybody that she tripped over the dogs and fell down the stairs. Only on planet Murdoch, I guess, their corruption game was strong. If you ask Alec's attorney, though, he'll tell you that Sled is just stirring up a whole bunch of drama. Now we are going to go to the event that I think would mark the beginning of the end of the Murdoch dynasty. Even though there had already been some rumors and scandal going around about Stephen Smith's death in 2015 and then Gloria Satterfield's death in 2018, things really didn't begin going sideways for the Murdochs until the evening of February 24th, 2019. This is the incident that triggered a closer investigation and media attention into Gloria's death and the settlements that her children had yet to receive at that time. This time, the Murdoch involved in the incident would be Alex's youngest son, Paul, who was 19 years old at the time, almost 20. The death this time was that of 19 year old Mallory Madison Beach. And you really can't get more of a quintessential Southern beauty than Mallory. She was kind and sweet and popular and very pretty. It was a February evening and it was chilly and kind of foggy. Mallory had been out with five friends all day on Saturday, the 23rd. She was with her boyfriend. Anthony Cook, his cousin, Connor Cook, Connor's girlfriend, Miley Altman, and their mutual friend, Paul Murdoch, and his girlfriend, Morgan Doherty. I'm sure you've all heard the details of what happened that evening. And because this is the incident that led to so much in the year to come, the year or two to come, but also it led to a lot as to what happened in years that have passed. So I'll try to be as concise as possible with this, but the details were not going to be swept under the rug that easily, like they were with Stephen and Gloria. Not this case. Not this time. So these six young people had been out the evening of February 23rd, for a whole afternoon and night of fun. They were going to attend an oyster roast, and then they were going to ride on Paul's family boat, and they'd be spending the evening at his family's river house on one of the islands. They ended up drinking, Paul apparently being one of the heaviest drinkers, and at some point in the evening, he was able to use his older brother Buster's ID to purchase alcohol when they got to the river house at a liquor store across the street Miley admitted to using a fake ID as well to purchase alcohol just thinking about oysters and drinking and speeding on a boat is making me nauseous I do not like seafood I've never even been close to an oyster Anyway, Paul apparently decided that they'd be better off drinking and boating because there would probably be DUI checkpoints along the roads. So Paul and Connor were pretty good friends and they allegedly took turns driving. Paul seemed to be one of those types that is like, this is my boat, I'll drive it, whatever. Anthony was not friends with Paul, but Connor was his cousin, so he was there going along with him. In fact, Miley told investigators that Anthony didn't even like Paul. Also, all of their girlfriends were best friends Miley, Mallory, and Morgan. So, this is just how the night worked out. They got alcohol, they got back to the river house, they drank, and just before sunset, they got back into Paul's dad's boat and headed over to where the oyster roast was being held, which was about a 30 minute boat ride from Paul's River House to the home where the roast was at. Paul's uncle, Alex's brother, Randy, he was also there at the roast. All six of them ate and drank alcohol there at the oyster roast from about 7.30 p.m. until 11.30 p.m. The host of the roast, Christy Woods, who was a principal of a local elementary school, Kind of sounded like she wanted to make sure that it was clear that she was not serving any alcohol. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. She gave details on what the six kids did, which included playing party games, playing some basketball games, cornhole, eating and relaxing around the fire pit. There was no mention of drinking. And when they were prepared to leave, she said that she was perfectly comfortable with the state that they were in, that they were fine and they were capable of driving the boat that night. But other adults at the oyster roast said that it was very cold outside. It was almost too cold for the six of them to take that boat back to Paul's family's river house and suggested that they get a ride share or that they get rides from some of the adults at the party. But they decided to take Paul's boat. Chrissy, the host, denied that alcohol was served, but she did admit that people did BYOB. When they left the roast in the boat, Paul did not head towards the river house, but rather he headed towards the city of Beaufort instead. Miley got upset because she wanted to go home and go to bed because she had to work the next day. Paul wanted to do more drinking, so he drove the boat over to a local bar, but only Paul and Connor went in to drink. The other four hung out at a nearby park. The bartender later admitted that she knew Paul. And she knew his age, but she served him and Connor anyway. And Paul used his mom's credit card to buy the shots that they were drinking. And they proceeded to post pictures of themselves drinking on social media. When Paul and Connor finally came out of the bar, the girls could tell that there had been a significant shift in Paul's personality. And to me, it sounds like one of those, he's one of those obnoxious, belligerent drunks. And he also apparently has such a shift in change in personality that he actually has a name for his drunk alter ego, Timmy. Anthony, the one who wasn't friends or even liked Paul, he wanted to take a ride share back to the river house, but the others were kind of going along with Paul, who was insisting that he was good to drive the boat. Anthony and Mallory and Connor and Miley We're actually still enjoying the evening and being with each other. There's surveillance images of them heading back towards the boat. They look like they're having a really great time. But in those same surveillance images, you can see that Paul and Morgan are not walking together like the others are. The other four are hand in hand. But Paul and Morgan, not so much. Actually, she was really pissed off at him. but. He really didn't give a shit. It seemed as though the two had a history of violence between them. And that would come to the surface on this night as things progressed. They got onto the boat and Paul was driving, but he was kind of meandering and almost running into a bridge at one point. The group wanted Connor to take over driving, but Paul was really stubborn about it. This was his boat. Nobody was driving it but him. And as they went along, the group were yelling at one another, particularly Miley, who I mentioned earlier, needed to get back home and go to bed because she had a morning shift the next day. But Paul, he was really off into his own world, apparently having transformed into Timmy. Soon it became foggy and it was even more difficult to see where they were going. They had a small light on the boat and a flashlight, but that was it. Paul continued to refuse to allow anyone else to drive, and because everybody was complaining and yelling that they wanted to get home, he began accelerating and driving the boat much faster than a drunk kid should be in very, very low visibility. I mean, not that he should be driving this at all, but it's just making it worse the fact that he is going so fast. And the more that the others wanted Connor to take over the driving, the angrier Paul got, cursing at everyone, telling everybody to just shut up. But soon, Paul and Morgan actually got into a physical fight, at which point Connor did take over the controls and the boat felt much more comfortable to be in for everybody when he did. Paul had gotten Morgan's face. He was yelling and screaming at her. And because he wouldn't stop, Morgan went ahead and kind of shoved him back, at which point he hit her. And then she hit him back. And that is when he decided to take back control of the boat even more angry than he had been before. There was one more physical altercation between Morgan and Paul, and the others kind of stood by, sort of in disbelief as to what was going on, and by this time, it was after two in the morning. At that point, Paul went back to driving the boat, but this time, he floored it, driving it as fast as he could, as angry as he could. Everyone is kind of hunkered down trying to keep from being knocked over every time the boat accelerated. And before anyone had a chance to react, they crashed into a bridge support. They all saw the bridge a split second before it hit. But by the time everyone got their wits about them and assessed what was happening after they crashed, they realized that Mallory was nowhere to be found. She was lost somewhere in the dark waters. Everyone was taken to a nearby hospital with the exception of Anthony, who stayed at the scene to help search for his girlfriend. The rest of the group suffered a variety of injuries, including Connor with a broken jaw and Morgan with a severely injured hand. Paul was excessively rude and belligerent and uncooperative at the hospital. He's being really nasty with the nurses. It wasn't until several hours after the accident that he had his blood drawn And his blood alcohol content was 0.24, three times the legal limit. And remember, this is hours later. Alec Murdoch had shown up at the hospital and he was observed seeking out the rooms that the other survivors were in in an attempt to talk to them. I'm not sure if he was allowed to, I don't know if he was let into their rooms or not. Later on, Connor Cook stated in a lawsuit that he filed that Alec actually asked him to retain his. BFF lawyer friend, the same one who, quote unquote, represented Gloria Satterfield's son, Corey Fleming. Clearly, Alec is continuing to try to use his power and influence to protect himself and his family and to manipulate, control, and intimidate everyone involved, but it's not going to be working for him as well as it used to. The search for Mallory went on for eight days and included members of law enforcement as well as community volunteers. They searched by boat, by air, as well as with divers. Eight days after the crash, on March 3rd, a pair of volunteers discovered Mallory's body about five miles or eight kilometers downriver from where the crash happened. The following month, Mallory's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Murdochs. And it wouldn't be until almost two months later, on what would be Mallory's 20th birthday, that Paul was charged with three counts of boating under the influence, causing a death. If convicted, he was looking at anywhere from 1 to 25 years in prison. He pleaded not guilty and was let out on bond while he waited for trial. It had also come to light that Paul was given tremendous amounts of preferential treatment when he was indicted and charged. I don't even think he was ever taken into the county jail. He was never placed in handcuffs. He was fingerprinted and photographed at the courthouse and he was bonded out right afterwards. Normally, a person would be arrested, handcuffed and taken into the county. They'd be processed and held there until they went before a judge unless they were able to post bond, at which point they would be processed out and given a notice to appear. But they definitely would spend some time in custody not Paul Murdoch, however, not only would Paul not spend one second in custody, he would also never stand trial to answer to the charges that he was facing. But before we move on to the next individuals who would wind up dead in this story, in a series of events that we are following sometime before June 7th of 2021, Alec Murdoch's wife, and Paul and Buster's mom, Maggie Murdoch, did two significant things. Sometime prior to that date, Maggie had reached out to a forensic accountant asking for her family's finances to be examined. And six weeks before June 7, 2021, she had a meeting in Charleston with a divorce attorney, which is about an hour away from where the family lived. This meeting with the divorce attorney was described as an exploratory consultation because she was starting to become concerned about the sources of their income and wanted to assess her family's assets. Maggie was not one who scrutinized where their income had came from. But after things began coming to light, particularly with Gloria Satterfield's wrongful death settlement ending up in her husband's fake bank account, Maggie started wondering. People who knew Maggie and Alec, they noticed that their once close loving relationship had become distant and chilly. However, just as Paul's troubles with the boat crash would unexpectedly come to an abrupt end, so would Alex's alleged marital problems with Maggie on the same exact day as her son's troubles coming to an end. 22-year-old Paul Murdoch, along with his 52-year-old mother, Maggie, were discovered shot to death on the family's hunting lodge property out by the dog kennels in Islington, South Carolina on June 7, 2021. Alec was the one who discovered their bodies and made the 911 call at approximately 10 p.m. that evening. He made sure to document his alibi on his 911 call by stating that he had just arrived to the area that he had been visiting his dad, Randolph III, who was terminally ill and suffering from dementia, and he would end up passing away only three days after Maggie and Paul were murdered. These are the deaths that really made Murdoch a household name as well as being the catalyst for the past Murdoch-connected deaths to be reinvestigated. Maggie and Paul had both been shot multiple times, and two different guns were used. Maggie was shot with a semi-automatic rifle, and Paul was shot with a shotgun. When Alec discovered the bodies, they had been laying there for approximately one hour. Because Alec was the husband and the father, and he was the one who had discovered the bodies, He immediately became a person of interest. As Sled was the agency that immediately took charge of the investigation, the people in charge of this case, Mallory's death, and the investigations into Gloria and Stephen's death, are very quick to say, "I'm not from Hampton County. The Murdoch name don't mean nothing to me," and along with that comes very, very little information about the investigation into Maggie and Paul's murder. The lead investigators from Sled are keeping things. Very close to the vest because they know that the Murdochs embody the loyalty and fellowship of the good old boys. So I ran across an article in the New York Post where the headline referring to Maggie Murdoch as the forgotten victim. And I guess they're not wrong, but it seems like most, if not all the victims at one time or another, were forgotten. Outside of the local area, we weren't going to know Stephen Smith was found dead back in 2015, and that his cause of death has been shrouded in mystery. We weren't going to know Gloria Satterfield's suspicious death and the subsequent theft of millions of dollars that should have gone to her children, but instead was funneled into a fraudulent bank account by Gloria's boss of two decades. We weren't going to know the son, grandson, and great-grandson, and great-great-grandson of the most powerful men in South Carolina's low country, Paul Murdoch, was boating while intoxicated with five of his friends and crashed into a bridge, killing one of the passengers and injuring all the others. And even if we across the nation were going to hear about the double murders of Paul and Maggie, Alec Murdoch's own actions in the months to come would far overshadow their violent deaths. In death, Paul's name is continuing to make the rounds in the media because of the charges that he was facing at the time that he was killed which, by the way, have been dropped. The civil lawsuits are probably going to be coming from every direction and from every which way for years to come, and his name would have been attached to most, if not all of them. But Maggie, who was she? Her name was Margaret Kennedy Branstetter. She came from a modest family who had originally come from a rural area in Kentucky. Her parents met in high school and ended up sneaking off to Tennessee to get married because they were too young to do so in Kentucky. Maggie was born in Nashville. Her dad's job with DuPont took him to South Carolina and then to Unionville, Pennsylvania, where Maggie went to high school. She was generally a typical girl, kind of preppy. She went by the name Margaret in high school. Nobody called her Maggie. She did a little drinking, a little chasing after boys, but her goal was simply to get married, to have children, to raise a family, which was something her friends said she was taught to aspire towards. Yes, go to college if you want to, but ultimately, marry well and be a homemaker. The only thing Maggie's friend said that she was guilty of was spoiling her two boys rotten. However, according to those who knew Maggie's sons, Buster was the older one who was now 26, and he was a bit more easygoing and more level-headed than his younger brother, Paul. He had a bad temper and was apparently so off the deep end that he actually seemed to turn into a whole other person, that person I told you given the name Timmy. By the age of 11, Paul apparently had not a problem telling any of his family, his aunts, or his cousins to go F themselves. He just didn't care, and he had no respect for authority. Some say it could be attributed to Maggie's overindulgence. Others would disagree. Her boys were her life. She was devoted to them. She was a stay-at-home mom. She did everything with and for them. She was the sweetest, most loving person ever, and I do not doubt that for a second. But that doesn't mean that she was going to be able to say that her perfect little angel would never misbehave or do anything bad. All the love in the world isn't going to stop her kids from seeing and taking advantage of their privilege. I mean, my God, Paul was 19 years old when he was boating recklessly, walking into bars, getting served no questions asked. He was physically abusive to his girlfriend. Well, Maggie's older son may have been a bit more down to earth. He's still possibly a person of interest in Stephen Smith's death. And there's a little bit more about him I'm going to tell you later on. Is the way Maggie's boys turned out her fault? Not necessarily. I don't blame her. I think maybe she needed to step in and intervene, particularly with Paul. But then again, she may not have even known how violent and dangerous Paul's behavior had become. Maggie's longtime friends, some of which she had a falling out with, because apparently Maggie used to pick on and tease her friends if they put on weight or weren't as thin as she was back then. Her longtime friends believed that Maggie began to understand the situation that she was in when it came to her marriage that there were some deep financial troubles going on, but yet she was forced to remain silent. She could not have a voice because of the family that she married into. But getting back to Maggie's history, her dad's job ended up taking him back to South Carolina, Cooper River specifically, and Maggie attended college at the University of South Carolina, and that's where she met Alec. Alec was her first real relationship And when they decided to get married, she moved to Hampton, which is described as a desolate rural town where the Murdochs led the criminal prosecutor's office and they led as civil litigators as well since 1910. A friend of Maggie's described her as very down to earth, funny, easygoing, and she loved and spoiled her boys, perhaps to a fault. She would do anything, literally anything for them. And there was never a time that either one of her boys spent any amount of time wanting for anything. And like I said earlier, Maggie was the only one who visited Gloria when she was on life support for 17 days. And as wealthy as the Murdochs were, with several properties that they owned, Maggie was described as being understated. However, over time, those properties became the residences where Maggie and Alec would be living apart but it has not been confirmed if Maggie was really ready to walk out on her marriage to Alec, who apparently was dealing with some major financial troubles and supposedly a long-standing addiction to opioids. Maggie just didn't talk to friends about it. But if she was fixing to divorce Alec, that would just be even more financial problems for him. However, at least one of Maggie's friends insists that they weren't having marriage troubles. And besides that, it's nobody's business. And that may very well be true. It's none of our business. But when Maggie ends up murdered, if there were marriage problems, then it's going to become law enforcement's business because that's a motive. Of course, Alec's attorney will say that the marriage was in great shape, no problems, because he's a person of interest in her murder. The privilege, influence, and entitlement that Alec once had began to weaken after his son's boat crash. But after the murders of his wife and son, it's pretty much non-existent. And it is his, what the New York Post has called Alex, criminal and civil shenanigans and status as a perpetual person of interest that have overshadowed Maggie's and pretty much everybody else's deaths that have some link to the Murdoch family. On Friday, September 3rd, 2021, Alec was confronted by several partners at his law firm about the misappropriation of funds, and they notified law enforcement as well as the State Bar Association regarding his financial transgressions. After hiring a forensic accounting firm, about $1 million was discovered missing, and after Alec was confronted, he was forced to resign. However, the story took yet another dramatic twist the following day on Saturday, September 4th, around one thirty in the afternoon. It was Labor Day weekend. 911 calls came in from a witness, as well as from Alec himself, stating that he had been shot in the head. One day after resigning from his law firm. Alec did have a head wound. And he did appear to be bleeding profusely from that head wound. But in his 911 call, he was lucid and honestly not very panicky. He was taken to the hospital and treated for what turned out to be a relatively superficial wound. According to Alec at that time, he was pulled over on the road working on changing a flat tire when he was approached by a gunman who shot him in the head. It was close to three months since Maggie and Paul were murdered. And even though there were no suspects that had been named, there was nobody in custody for the shootings, law enforcement officials had assured the public that there was nothing to be worried about. Which to me is kind of a bold statement to make considering there was a double murder in the community. Unless they knew something. If this was an isolated incident, And they had solid information as to who may be involved. And then lo and behold, three months later, Alec gets shot too. Well, yeah, it really doesn't seem like anybody else, but a Murdoch has anything to worry about, right? He was shot in the head, but it was hardly life-threatening. So what does all of this mean? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine at this point. I don't know who killed Maggie and Paul. And I don't know what Alec's shooting is all about, either, but anyway, Alec described the shooter as a white guy, but he also said that the man was a fair amount younger than me. That was a quote, but that's not true. The person who would later be found to be involved is actually sixty one years old, a fair amount older than him. Alec said that the shooter had driven past him, but then made a u-turn and then came back and opened fire. That was information that was given to the media by Alec's attorney. His attorney also told the media that Alec was airlifted to a hospital in Charleston, South Carolina, but that was a lie. The truth was he was flown to a hospital in Savannah, Georgia. Then just two days later, on Monday the 6th, Alec was discharged from the hospital. And this surprised everybody because of the reports of him being shot in the head and what his attorney was telling the media It sounded much more serious than a two-day hospital stay. But from there, Alec immediately checked himself into a rehab facility in Florida. In a statement from Alec released to the media by his attorney, stated, The murders of my wife and son have caused an incredibly difficult time in my life. I have made a lot of decisions that I truly regret. I'm resigning from my law firm and entering rehab after a long battle that has been exasperated by these murders. I am immensely sorry to everyone that I've hurt, including my family, friends, and colleagues. I ask for prayers as I rehabilitate myself and my relationships. A couple of hours after that statement was made, the law firm that he used to work for, that his family founded and owned for 111 years by then, called PMPD, if you recall, I mentioned earlier, they released a statement too. It said, ALEC's resignation came after the discovery by PMPED that ALEC misappropriated funds in violation of our standards and policies. A forensic accounting firm retained, conducted a thorough investigation. Law enforcement and the South Carolina Bar have been notified by us. This is disappointing news for all of us. Rest assured that our firm will deal with this in a straightforward manner. There is no place in our firm for such behavior. Due to the ongoing investigations in these matters and client confidentiality, PMPED cannot comment further at this time. We encourage any client with questions to contact our offices regarding their file. Alex's brother, Randy, who was also a partner at the law firm, sided with his firm, not his brother. He issued a statement expressing his disappointment in his brother, as well as his love for his law firm family. He further said that he will support Alec as he works through recovering from his drug addiction but cannot condone his stealing from their company. Sled visited Alec at the rehab where he was staying to speak to him about the shooting, but by then his story had changed. This time he said that he was changing his tire. A passerby, who he did not know, stopped supposedly to help him but rather fired a gun at him. But it turned out that that wasn't true either. Ten days after the shooting, a longtime friend of Alex, 61-year-old Eddie Smith, was arrested and charged with assisted suicide, assault and battery of a high aggravated nature, pointing and presenting a firearm, insurance fraud and conspiracy to commit insurance fraud. He's also facing additional drug charges. Sled's investigation into the shooting revealed that Alec and Eddie allegedly conspired together for Eddie to help Alec commit suicide, that Alec gave Eddie a gun and instructed him to shoot him in the head along Sakahatchee Road, where the shooting took place, in order to make Alec's death appear to be a murder, so his surviving son, Buster, would be able to collect on a $10 million life insurance benefit. Eddie's arrest warrant stated that after he shot Alec, he disposed of the weapon. Alec admitted to the scheme on September 13th, and Eddie also admitted to his involvement, but his story is a little bit different. According to Eddie's attorney, Alec called him that day and told him to head to the location where he was at and to bring his work truck. This would not have been an unusual thing for Alec to call Eddie for. He's called him many times and asked for his help and for him to bring his truck. And Eddie said that Alec is one of those guys that if he tells you to do something, then you drop everything and you just do it. So when Eddie arrived at the place where Alec instructed him to go to, Alec's behavior was erratic and out of control. And before long, Alec produced a gun, claiming that he was going to kill himself. Eddie immediately attempted to wrestle the gun away from him. And these two were apparently older, yet large, strong men. And they're tussling over this weapon. And at some point during this kerfuffle, the gun went off, leaving a superficial wound to Alec's head. So according to Eddie, he actually saved Alec's life, having stopped him from fatally shooting himself. So as it stands, both Eddie and Alec are in the same jail. Alec had already been arrested before the shooting on the insurance fraud charges and he was out on bond. But after the shooting, he was arrested at the drug rehab facility that he had gone to. And at a subsequent hearing, he was denied bond after the judge decided that he was a danger to himself and to others. But then I believe the bond was eventually set at $7 million, which he has not been able to make. I believe Eddie Smith's bond is set at $55,000, which he also has not been able to make. Alec Murdoch's assets have been frozen. There are lots of lawsuits as of December of 2021, approximately eight of them, various ones. There may be more on the way. Most of them are related to the boat crash that his son was involved in that killed Mallory Beach. Mallory's boyfriend, Anthony Cook, was the most recent person to file a lawsuit against Alec Mallory's mom, Renee, is also suing Alec, his son Buster, and the liquor store who sold Paul alcohol when he presented Buster's ID in order to make the purchase. She is also suing the couple who hosted the oyster roast and the bar that served Paul and Connor and another gas station that sold Paul alcohol. Alec is also accused in the lawsuit of being negligent in allowing his son to drive the boat. Connor Cook, another passenger on the boat, is also suing Alec, Buster, and the liquor store that sold Paul alcohol. His suit alleges that Alec, along with several others, are attempting to blame him for the boat crash instead of Paul by accusing him of being the one driving the boat at the time of the crash and that Alec attempted to control the narrative of what happened and ordered him to not speak to the police who were investigating the crash. Connor also alleges that Alec began a whisper campaign within the community to try and mislead law enforcement and to obstruct justice so that Connor would be the one held criminally responsible for the crash instead of Paul. Alec is also being sued by Gloria Satterfield's family for the wrongful death money that he stole from them following her 2018 alleged quote unquote slip and fall death inside Alec's home. He's also being sued by his brother and former law partners for the money that they loaned Alec, but also the money that he embezzled from them. So in all, we've got Renee Beach versus Parker's 55, which is the liquor store, Alec Murdoch and Buster Murdoch. We've got Connor Cook versus Parker's 55, Tajiha Cohen, which is the cashier that sold the alcohol, Alec Murdoch and Buster Murdoch. We've got Anthony Cook versus Gregory M. Parker Incorporated, Parkers, 55, Tahia Cohen, and Alec Murdoch. We have Philadelphia Indemnity Insurance versus Alec Murdoch, Buster Murdoch, and Renee Beach, which is Mallory's mom. Alec wanted his insurance company to cover all the wrongful death lawsuits against him related to the boat crash. His insurance company claimed that they're not responsible for that, and they did, in fact, win this lawsuit. We have another lawsuit Mallory Beach's family versus Parker's 55, Greco, DeCruz, Ward, Frittati, Rosado, and Private Investigation Services, LLC. In this lawsuit, Mallory's family is alleging that the liquor store who sold Paul alcohol actually launched a social media harassment campaign against them. And these are all of the individuals and entities involved in that. And the Beach family are suing all of them. There is another lawsuit, Randolph Murdoch IV versus Richard Alexander Murdoch. That's Randy versus Alec, brother suing brother for the stealing of the money and money that Alec owes him. There's John E. Parker versus Richard Alexander Murdoch. That's another partner at the law firm suing Alec also for the same things. And of course, the whole law firm, PMPED, has a lawsuit also pending against ALEC. All right, I think that I have thoroughly covered almost everything. As it stands, Paul and Maggie's murders are still unsolved, and SLED is being super quiet about it. It's not clear yet if anyone is going to be charged in Stephen Smith's murder. That investigation is still ongoing as is Gloria Satterfield's death. With Paul being dead, it doesn't look like anyone will be held criminally responsible for her death directly, but a bunch of people and entities are looking at possibly being civilly liable for it. And did Eddie Smith try to help Alec commit suicide or did he try to help save his life? That I am really not sure which story is true. If Either of them is true, really. And one last thing, Buster Murdoch. What's going on with that guy? He is Alec and Maggie's oldest and now only son. Before all the drama, it appeared as though Buster was set to follow in his father's footsteps and go to school, study law, and ultimately join the family firm. He was attending the University of South Carolina School of Law. But he was expelled for plagiarism in the spring of 2019. I guess it doesn't surprise me that Buster suddenly began struggling at school in the wake of his brother's boat crash and all of the fallout that resulted from that. After all, he was front and center of it all, having loaned his younger brother his ID so that he could buy that alcohol. And The investigation prompted a fresh look at Stephen Smith's death back in 2015, which Buster's name had also been floated as a potential person of interest in that. Some have said that Buster and Stephen were actually good friends, while others have suggested that they may have had a sexual relationship, but none of that has been confirmed, nor has Buster been linked to Stephen's murder. Hayes refused to speak to investigators about any of it. In fact, Buster has not spoken publicly at all. He does live on one of the properties that his family owns, but what he is doing for work or anything going on in his personal life is largely unknown. Alec has signed power of attorney over to Buster, so now he gets named in all of the lawsuits filed against his father. In October of 2021, There were lawsuits filed requesting a temporary injunction against both Alec and Buster that was filed by those who have been wronged by Alec to stop them both from hiding, concealing, misappropriating, selling, encumbering, transferring, or impairing the value or otherwise disposing of assets or funds that belong to them. Buster now has the ability to manipulate things and possibly stall all of the matters, the legal troubles that his father is facing. And I did post on social media a picture of him in Las Vegas just before that injunction was requested. And they think that that trip to Las Vegas kind of prompted that because they really didn't want him running off and gambling away his family fortune, I guess. All right. So that is the tale of the house of Murdoch. I hope it a little bit more clear for all of you. It is for me. There's a lot of information. It's overwhelming, but I tried to tell it in a way that went in order instead of going all over the place because that was kind of the problem that I'm having. And I'm actually finding it difficult to find even answers to the Little questions I have about details, like for example, I couldn't find out whether or not they've recovered the gun that Alec was shot with. I I searched and searched. Maybe some of you might know. I don't know, but it sounds like a lot of information is just being kept close to the vest. All right, that's it. It's um a little bit after six o'clock on New Year's Day. I tried to relax and rest because I wanted to get this finished and recorded for you. So I had a quiet evening to myself with my dogs as the new year rang in. So 2022, it kind of feels like 2021 just kicked us in the ass one more time by taking Betty White away from us. I know all of us are looking back on her career and her life and she was just Such a beloved figure for so many years across so many decades, it's hard to imagine a world without her. But regardless of that, I wish you all a very, very happy new year. I am trying really hard to stay positive, to be as productive and as present as I can be. However, I will tell you a couple of hours ago, my daughter called me. She said that my mom had actually passed out and was having, struggling with breathing. Um, I, she was, I don't know why she called me or she didn't call 911, but she actually had never called 911 before. So I stayed on the phone with her while she did it and walked her through what to say and what they were going to ask for and what that she would need to know her grandma's medical history and the medications that she's taken, recent um, medical events that she's been dealing with and other health problems that she's diabetic. She's on dialysis. She just had a heart attack. So that literally just happened like, I think about two hours ago or so right before I started recording. But anyway, um, I don't mean to seem so flippant about it, but it's kind of just like not, It's not surprising me anymore because my mom is just a walking like medical emergency. But anyway, I just got back from California. I've been back for a week. I just spent time with her and saw her. It was good so I can feel okay and at peace with everything right now. But there's nothing that I can do. But just wait. I will give you an update on social media when I can. All right. That's it. I will let you all go. It's been two hours and three minutes of me Blabbing on about this story. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. I will get back to the regular structure of the show next time. And I will make sure I know some of you have joined Patreon recently and have sent over donations through PayPal. I owe you all a thank you. I will get to that in the next episode. I'm going to go ahead and sign off now. I'm going to shut up. Thank you so much. I love you all. Happy New Year. And until next time, sweet dreams.